As we continue our time this morning, we are back in Ecclesiastes, finishing up our look at Ecclesiastes chapter 9. I appreciate you all coming back, particularly this week, because we're not talking about death, we're not talking about politics. Hopefully, hopefully it's a little easier to listen to today. But nonetheless, definitely wisdom that we must hear from the book of Ecclesiastes. With that being said, we will be in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, beginning in verse 11 and finishing out chapter 9 in verse 18. And so, once again, if you would, stand with me again, and we'll read our passage for today. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 11 through 18. I again saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, and the battle is not to the warriors, and neither is bread to the wise, nor wealth to the discerning, nor favor to men of ability. For time and chance overtake them all. Moreover, man does not know his time. Like fish caught in a treacherous net and birds trapped in a snare, so the sons of men are ensnared at an evil time when it suddenly falls on them. Also this I came to see as wisdom under the sun, and it impressed me. There was a small city with few men in it, and a great king came to it, surrounded it, and constructed large siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he delivered the city by his wisdom. Yet no one remembered that poor man. So I said, wisdom is better than strength, but the wisdom of the poor man is despised and his words are not heeded. The words of the wise heard in quietness are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. This is the word of God. Please be seated. Regardless of how old you are this morning, and regardless where you grew up, I assume a lot of us heard a number of similar themes and lessons growing up. Lessons from our parents, lessons from teachers, lessons from perhaps childhood entertainment. You're familiar with many of those lessons, no doubt. Lessons like the importance of of putting other needs ahead of your own, the importance of, of working as a team with your fellow classmates, with your siblings. We learn lessons that teach us things like it's, it's, on the inside, it's what's on the inside that counts, not on the outside. And we learn that, that even though life is unfair, the most important thing is to, to stand by your convictions, to be a, a, a nice, kind-hearted person. Regardless of, of the faith of your family, regardless of the type of the school you grew up in, these are the types of lessons that our society still stands by. I have two little ones myself, and so I find myself frequently watching children's television programming. Not something I necessarily recommend. But, as annoying as the theme songs are for so many of those shows, the general messages are generally praiseworthy. They're, They're the messages of kindness, the messages of hard work, the messages of unity. These are the things that that our society generally understands to be good and right and valuable things that we as believers see as valuable as well. And yet as precious as those themes are, as common as those lessons are, something tends to happen to a lot of us as we grow older, doesn't it? We get a a bit of a cynical streak in many of us. And while we still might say things like, you know, it's what's on the inside that counts, as we get older, many of us think, yeah, but the outside matters quite a bit too, doesn't it? Right? And even though we might say things like, it doesn't matter if the world's unfair, you still must be kind, you still be, must be nice, many of us, if we're honest, live more by the method of, or by the lesson of, 
Well, in this world, nice guys finish last. And so sometimes if you want to get something done, well, forget others, just do it yourself. And, and forget those basic childhood lessons that you learned as a kid because you understand that the world isn't as ideal, isn't as precious as we're told in childhood. Sadly, many of us, both believers and unbelievers, live more by those rules of cynicism. We live more according to this rule that says, well, ultimately you just have to forget those things and and look like everyone else, live like everyone else, because that is where success is found. And yet, as clear as that might be to so many of us, as we come to Ecclesiastes chapter 9, we see that Solomon isn't nearly that cynical, shockingly. We see Solomon himself speaking of of some of those lessons that we learn in childhood, but instead of, of speaking them as a waste of time, Solomon in essence, comes before us and he says, no, these things are still true. Those lessons you learn as a kid still hold a great deal of truth today. And, and even if wisdom and, and these lessons don't necessarily appear to be impressive, ultimately, wisdom is shockingly valuable and shockingly effective. And what we must remember as we read these words of Solomon today is, is that as childish as some of these lessons might sound to our cynical ears... These are the lessons that are to guide us today. And our life must be marked by a pursuit of that wisdom. The question I want us to ask ourselves this morning, though, is is whether or not we really believe that. Are we honestly that impressed with wisdom, or have we moved past it in our older age? My prayer is that as we hear these familiar themes and consider the value of wisdom that Solomon speaks of, that we too might might respond with that appropriate appreciation. Might we respond with that appropriate pursuit of that which is truly beautiful, at least in the eyes of God. With that being said, before we dig into that familiar theme, let me go and open us up in a word of prayer, and we'll get started. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for our time this morning, God. We thank you for the precious words we were just able to sing to you. God, I consider the the lyrics of the last song that we sang in which we declare, It is well. What a necessary reminder that is to us this morning. For we live in a world in which it does not look well at all, God. We live in a world in which the daily news seems to suggest that all has actually gone terribly, terribly wrong. And if we allow ourselves to be overcome by that daily news, we can forget exactly what we're talking about this morning. We can slowly begin to look more and more like the chaotic world around us, forgetting the simple truths that are presented to us in your word, And as we begin to look more and more like the world around us, God, we confess that our eyes forget to look to that future end, at which point in time the clouds will be rolled back as a scroll scroll in which you, Jesus Christ, our Savior, will return for us. God, we eagerly anticipate that day. And our prayer is this morning that as we sang that song and as we consider these words of Solomon, that we might be reminded of the beauty and the preciousness of that truth, God. Might we remember that there's nothing to be ashamed of in holding, true, uh, holding to these words of wisdom of Solomon. There's nothing to be ashamed of in holding true to the characteristics that are commanded to us in Scripture, God. In fact, the only worthwhile pursuit we have in this life is the pursuit of your Son and the pursuit of his wisdom, God. Cause us to see that wisdom more clearly today. Cause us to be more and more like your Son, Jesus Christ. And it is in his name we pray these things. Amen. As we begin our time this morning, we begin with perhaps that which is most familiar to us, that which is least challenging. It's the sort of familiar story, familiar themes that, again, is represented frequently even today in children's programming. 
It's the basic lesson that says that success is not always found in personal abilities or personal skills. You can also say it really is what's on the inside that counts. You see this basic understanding spoken of by Solomon in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 9 through 12. Again, look with me, if you will, and see this familiar theme. There Solomon says, I again saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, and the battle is not to the warriors, and neither is bread to the wise, nor wealth to the discerning, nor favor to men of ability. For time and chance overtake them all. Moreover, man does not know his time like fish caught in a treacherous net and birds trapped in a snare. So the sons of men are ensnared at an evil time when it suddenly falls on them. As Solomon observes the world around him, he he speaks of this observation that he makes. And that observation is quite simply that mankind, humanity, assumes that the personal strength, personal abilities will guarantee an endless level of success. That if you're strong enough, if you're fast enough, if you're attractive enough, that you can stay ahead of, the, of, of fate, that you can be a master of your own destiny. But Solomon says, of course, well, that's, that's not the case at all, because eventually, as he so bluntly speaks of in verse 12, eventually time runs out. Eventually that net closes and you will be captured and it all will come to an end. To perhaps put it in the vernacular of our own culture, eventually your luck is going to run out regardless of how talented you are, regardless of how many skills you might possess. Now, this lesson, again, is by no means anything new. All of you have heard this lesson from the earliest of age, haven't you? You were taught at a young age that success is not always found purely in your own personal abilities, in your own personal skills. You were taught at a young age that eventually time runs out, and yet... And yet, how many of us still seem to forget this lesson daily? That is to say, how many of us continually fix our eyes upon that which is strong, that which is fast, that which is beautiful, and we say, yes, yes, that's success. If I can be more like that, I will be successful. I will avoid the pitfalls that commonly trip me up on a daily life. This tendency to look upon that which is outward, that which is glorifying to man, is by no means anything new. And it is by no means unique to to one individual. For as we read throughout all of Scripture, we see this tendency to focus on outward appearance really plagues every single one of us. You think, for instance, of, of the unbelieving world, those who were, for instance, enemies of Jesus Christ. Why did so many of them reject Jesus? I mean, for a variety of reasons, of course. But one reason is quite physical, quite basic in nature. Many of you are familiar with it in the prophecy of Isaiah 53. In Isaiah 53, speaking of that future Messiah, the prophet says this, He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, uh, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Long before Jesus was born in his earthly incarnation, the prophet Isaiah tells us that one of the reasons why it would be such a a difficulty for the masses to accept his teaching was, was quite simply he didn't look the part. Jesus didn't physically look like a hero, and therefore it was hard to to hear his words of authority and and really attach them to to anything significant. We see the same sort of accusation that that other enemies of Jesus Christ and enemies of the gospel make against Jesus' apostles, don't we? 
For after Jesus leaves in his ascension, and as the disciples begin their bold preaching of the gospel word, we read words like this in Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, listening to the preaching of these apostles, we read this in Acts 4 verse 13. It says, Now as they, that is these enemies, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John, and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. Again, for these enemies of the gospel, what made it so difficult to accept the the words of the apostles? What what made their proclamation so confusing? Well, it's because they weren't very smart. Right? These guys didn't have the education that the enemies of the cross had, so how, how were they so articulate in their speaking? Why were they so confident? They, they didn't look like everyone else. They didn't sound like everyone else. And, and this seemed to make no sense at all to these enemies of the cross. We see the same tendencies, of course, in our world today, don't we? We live in a culture that's obsessed with, with that which is viewed as beautiful, that which is viewed as intelligent, that which is viewed as, as powerful. And it should be no surprise to us then when we, we understand that the world continually does this. Enemies of the cross, people outside of the truth, cannot wrap their heads around anyone being successful if they do not look a certain way, if they do not sound a certain way. Again, this is no surprise to us, for unbelievers have always done this, but, but many of us as believers might say, well, yeah, but, but that's them, not me. I look at the heart. I'm better than that. But of course, we see the tendency isn't just those enemies of the cross, is it? We see the same tendency amongst immature believers throughout Scripture as well. Uh, One powerful example of this are the critiques that the Apostle Paul heard from the Corinthian church constantly. We don't have time to to look there, but later I encourage you to consider the critiques that were lodged at him according to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 6, the Apostle Paul references the idea that, that his critics said that he was unskilled in speech. He wasn't a very good speaker. He couldn't argue like, a, like an intelligent Roman should be able to argue. And so based off of this and, and other basic physical critiques of Paul, there were those who, who questioned his, his apostolic authority just because he didn't sound smart enough. He didn't look the part. Again, these are not critics coming from outside of the church. These are professing believers. And you see the same tendency rub off on the Corinthians themselves. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul references this dangerous tendency amongst these believers. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, as he speaks of his concern of those believers, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 4, 8. He says, you are already filled, you have already become rich, you have become kings without us. And indeed, I wish you had become kings so that we might reign with you. For I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, both angels and men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless We toil working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become, as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. Even in this concern of the Apostle Paul, you you hear this tendency amongst the Corinthian believers, don't you? 
they are having a hard time with Paul and the other apostles because they're poor, because they're not impressive looking, because they're not ruling and reigning as powerful people in the Corinthian society. And so those Corinthian believers are in essence saying, ah, we like the gospel, but, but we would really like to look like successful Corinthians. Because they assume that that is what success means. They assume that, that if they can find someone smart enough, attractive enough, that that would bring power, that would bring success. Time and time again, the Apostle Paul speaks of that immaturity. And sadly, that same immaturity lies within the church so frequently today. There are many new believers that, that mistakenly assume that, that success in the eyes of Christ really just equals success in the eyes of any given American. You can look at the, the blatant examples of this in the health, wealth, and prosperity world. Years ago, uh, one of those health and wealth prosperity preachers, Creflo Dollar, made the news by requesting his followers to donate enough money to buy him a private jet. We laugh at this, but tragically, there are many professing believers that think, oh, that makes sense. Because if, if, he, if he wants to be powerful in the eyes of God, if he wants to be powerful in the eyes of man, well, then he has to look the part. He has to be wealthy. He has to sound a certain way. Tragically, that tendency, that belief has spread throughout so many immature believers. But yet again, yet again, as we consider that tendency and, and see it in, in people that we view as outside of us, people that, that attend other churches, attend other denominations, we say, well, yes, that's them, but they don't know the gospel like we know the gospel. They don't know the word of God like we know the word of God, so, so certainly this is not our tendency. Most of you can see where I'm going with this, right? No, this tendency is just as much here as it is anywhere else. Again, throughout any example in Scripture, we see that this is a universal temptation for all believers. One powerful example that is found in the Old Testament, one that Solomon himself would have known very well, is the example of Samuel. Many of you know Samuel, at least in passing. You perhaps know enough to know that, that Samuel was a godly man, a godly godly man that was used by god for powerful things he actually anointed david as the next king david solomon or solomon's dad samuel was perhaps most famous in his confrontation of the israelites back in first samuel those israelites had selected a, or had desired a new king and that new king was saul saul was attractive to the israelites because well he was tall and handsome and they thought yes yes that's what we want and Samuel blasted the Israelites uh, quite, uh, quite honestly for that desire. And yet, even in Samuel's own life, you see the tendency to look upon the outward appearance when it comes to assuming what will bring success. For turn back, if you will, back to 1 Samuel 16. You see this fascinating tendency even in the life of Samuel. For in 1 Samuel 16, God has sent Samuel to anoint the next king. Saul has failed miserably. Despite being tall and attractive, he didn't make too great of a leader. And so Samuel's being sent to find the next new guy, the one that will lead people appropriately. Samuel is not told exactly who the next king will be. He is just told where to go and eventually finds out that he has to go into the house of Jesse. Picking up with the story at that point in 1 Samuel 16, verse 6, we read this. When they entered, that is specifically Samuel, he looked at Eliab and thought, well, surely the Lord's anointed is before us. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Do not miss the significance of what Samuel does here. 
For Samuel has already seen the folly of the Israelites to love Saul purely because he is tall and handsome. And yet the moment that same Samuel walks in the house of Jesse and he sees Eliab, what does he think? All right, that guy looks the part. He's tall. He looks good. Surely this is the Lord's anointed. We know this is his belief because God immediately corrects him. He says, don't look at that. That's not what I'm basing anything off of. In fact, I have rejected this individual and we ultimately see that God chooses David. Brothers and sisters in Christ, every single one of us tends to look entirely at the outward appearance. We all do it. We assume that success looks and sounds a certain way and it just so happens to look and sound the exact same way that the rest of our culture tends to assume it looks and sounds. We adopt those cultural expectations. And we must be careful to acknowledge that and and see that tendency both amongst unbelievers as well as mature believers, because if we fail to see that, we will unintentionally begin to love and emulate that which is actually outside of God's blessing. That which is actually foolish. Again, we see that in the example of Israel, don't we? They wanted to be like the nations, and so what did God give them? He gave them Saul. And the Israelites loved him, at least at first. We see the Israelites slowly become more and more like the nations, thereby bringing God's judgment upon them. We, of course, see it in the example of the Corinthian church, where they they see success through the the lens of Corinthian culture, and as a result, they, they allow wicked sin to infiltrate their church body. And as a result, Paul says, the the judgment of God is coming down upon them. As a result, some individuals have lost their life out of judgment. And Paul warns them to to not look like everyone else, but to remember that God is is concerned more with that which is of the heart. We must remember because even today we tend to do the same thing. We know what God loves We know what God blesses, and yet as we grow older, we start to assume that that maybe that's not enough. John Calvin, writing on this subject, in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, specifically when Jesus says, blessed are the meek, says this. He says, when Christ promises to such persons, that is the meek, the inheritance of the earth, we might think it exceedingly foolish. For those who repel attacks and whose hand is ever ready to revenge injuries are rather the persons who claim for themselves dominion of the earth. Meaning, Jesus says, blessed are the meek, but when we look around, it seems like it's those who take vengeance, those who are wicked themselves that have dominion. Continuing on that subject, Calvin says, experience certainly shows that the more mildly wickedness of others is endured, the more bold and insolent it becomes. Hence arises the diabolical proverb that we must howl like the wolves because the wolves will immediately devour everyone who makes himself a sheep. But, as we must believe, Christ alone is the guardian of our life. All that remains for us truly is to hide ourselves under the shadow of his wings. We must be sheep if we wish to be reckoned a part of his flock. In this commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, John Calvin is simply speaking to that same tendency that Solomon points out. It is the tendency to look at the world around us and assume that, that while those lessons Christ taught us are all well and good, That while it is good to be meek, while it is good to focus on what is in the inside, ultimately we look around us and and we see we're surrounded by wolves. And the the natural temptation arises that, that, well, maybe we should look more more like them. Because we don't take on their strategies, if we don't take on their character, then then they're just going to devour us anyway. 
So what's the harm in it? Well, the harm is that we betray our allegiance. We demonstrate that we're far more like the wolves than we are sheep. And we do so because we assume to live this life of wisdom is a death wish. And so if we want to be successful, surely we must just look and sound like everyone else. Yet Solomon says this is not the case. Fate will catch up. Your luck will run out. To put a more biblical focus on it, the word of God is still true. And so as foolish as it might seem, we must embody the wisdom that Solomon recommends here. Having made this claim, he then continues to move on in the discussion, verses 13 through 18, and and speak a second point regarding this wisdom that, that initially appears to be so illogical. And it is here that we find, I think, the far more challenging aspect of Solomon's writing. For as he continues to write, Solomon no longer speaks to the reality of of wisdom just being good and right. He also speaks to the fact that wisdom really is better. It really does work. And he describes it in a variety of ways here. We see this pick up in verse 13 through the end. Again, follow along with me as we read. He says, also, this I came to see as wisdom under the sun, and it impressed me. There was a small city with few men in it, and a great king came to it, surrounded it, and constructed large siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he delivered the city by his wisdom. Yet no one remembered that poor man. So I said, wisdom is better than strength, but the wisdom of the poor man is despised, and his words are not heeded. The words of the wise heard in quietness are better than the shouting of a ruler amongst fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Yet again, I trust that it is easy for many of us to read these words and not bat an eye, but but think of how shocking what Solomon says here truly is. Wisdom's better than power? Wisdom's better than military might? Could that really be the case? It's exactly what he says here, that the wisdom is, is surprisingly effective. And to paint this picture, he begins in verses 13 through 15 of, of speaking of the situation in which Solomon sees this, this small city that is surrounded. Again, you don't have to know too much about ancient military conquest to, to picture what's happening here. Solomon sees this small city and he, he pictures this large military coming around it. As many of you already know, in those ancient days to help defeat cities... Instead of wasting soldiers' lives, larger armies could simply surround a city, thereby cutting off all supplies to the city. And so, if you lived in the city, basically you had one of two options. You could either, actually, more than two options, right? You could leave your city and fight, at which point in time you're immediately cut down by the stronger military. You could try to wait them out, but eventually you're going to starve to death. Or you could just surrender. It was quite a brilliant military tactic, and you can read throughout history of, of many powerful cities that were brought down simply by, by waiting out others, uh, the, the people inside. And yet, despite how impressive of a military strategy that is, despite the fact that it worked constantly in the ancient world, Solomon speaks of this one example where a, a poor man inside, by his wisdom, was somehow able to defeat the army. He was somehow able to deliver his entire city. Now, Solomon does not specifically explain how this happens. He just says, well, this happens, and and many lives were saved. Now, as Solomon describes this hypothetical situation, many of us can can perhaps think of of a number of military conquests that were won by that that one individual. 
But again, if we're honest, I think a lot of us think, well, okay, Solomon. I thought it happened one time, but most of the time the city falls, right? I mean, okay, Solomon, but, but that hypothetical situation, I just don't really see that working out these days. And yet, as you look throughout Scripture, you see time and time again historical evidence backing up the fact that the wisdom really is effective. Shockingly, shockingly effective. Again, in the life of Solomon, he would have known the story well of his father David defeating Goliath. That is a story that, that screams this example of wisdom for David as a man that was wise enough to trust in Yahweh. He was intelligent and wise enough to understand that that's ultimately where his victory was found. And he was smart enough, wise enough to not use the average weapons of war. He knew, he, he chose what he knew best. His slingshot. And as a result, he was able to, of course, bring down mighty Goliath. Solomon no doubt understood that story. But Scripture gives us so many other stories along those same lines of, of the most unlikely of people using wisdom to bring about the deliverance of their people. We don't have time to discuss at great length the mighty conquest of David or even Solomon. We don't have time to get into the story of Daniel. But, but I do want to highlight at least one, and that is the story of Esther. One of these precious Old Testament stories that is so oftentimes overlooked. And yet it is an incredible picture of wisdom. For in the story of Esther, you have this woman who is, of course, under the authority of this godless king. And in the story of Esther, you have the politically savvy figure of Haman, this wicked individual who seeks to destroy the people of God, and he is able to do so, or at least get close to doing so, because of his political abilities. And yet, before that destruction comes, we find this part of the story in Esther chapter 4, Verse 13, where another figure, another Jewish person, Mordecai, comes forward to speak to Esther. Esther chapter 4, beginning in verse 13, we read, Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not imagine that you, that you are in the king's palace and can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for your Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have attained royalty for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three, day, for three days, night or day. I and my maidens also will fast in the same way, and thus I will go to the king, which is not according to the law, and if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and did just as Esther had commanded him. In this story of Esther, we see this, this brilliant display of the type of wisdom that Solomon praises. We see someone who does not really possess in and of herself authority, at least not in that culture. And yet we see someone who is used by God to overcome this wicked individual Haman and deliver all of her people in the process. She does not do it by military might. She does not do it by, by anything that would have been all that impressive by the world. She does it first by fasting and praying. And she does it by wisely trusting in God and following through with a wise strategy that is played out the rest of the book. Esther, like David, like Solomon, understood the power and effectiveness of true wisdom. And again, we see examples of this throughout Scripture. Obviously, the most blatant example is, is seen in the ministry of Jesus Christ as well, isn't it? For time and time again, Jesus is able to, to confound his enemies with just a single spoken word. So many times we have this, this great climactic buildup where, where Jesus' enemies are gathering around and they're saying, okay, 
okay, how can we do this? How can we trip Jesus up? How can we trap him in his words? How can we get him to say something that will get him executed? And these aren't dumb people. These are intelligent, educated men that are trying to trip Jesus up. And yet, despite all of their best efforts, what we find throughout the Gospels and passages like Matthew 22 is that they come forward, they offer Jesus their brilliant strategy to bring him down, and, and Jesus confounds them with just a few words. He makes them look like fools in the eyes of the public. And those enemies leave time and time again frustrated. Again, not because Jesus used his, his might, his power, his strength to overwhelm them, but Jesus used simply wisdom in the form of spoken word. Time and time again in Scripture, we are reminded that the wisdom really is effective. That it really is better than worldly power. It really is better than military might, as, as Solomon himself is saying here. For throughout church history, you have endless examples of powerful, powerful men and women who sought to destroy the church. I mean, people who led the entire Roman Empire that, that made it their entire goal to end the church, and yet they're unable to do it. Why? Did the church somehow come up with a great military strategy to defeat the, the militias of Rome? No. No, the church just continued to live on in their calling. And despite the fact that they were sheep surrounded by wolves, the sheep survived. And even today, the church continues to thrive. I think oftentimes in our culture, we forget that fact. We look around us and we think, oh man, the church is in so much trouble. How are we ever going to get through this? Maybe we need to change the way we speak. Maybe we need to change our strategy so that we can maintain a place at the table. And we forget that throughout the world where Christians have been brutally persecuted, the church is growing exponentially. In countries like Iran and, and China and elsewhere, believers are, are coming and they're following Jesus Christ. And we see in all these things, again, the infinitely greater worth of just the wisdom of God and how it trumps all else. We see throughout Scripture and throughout world history then that Solomon is is not exaggerating. He's not buttering us up with some childhood lesson. He's speaking the truth when he says wisdom really is better. The question is whether or not you believe it. Do you believe that? Do you really think the wisdom of God is effective? Or do you think God needs you to neglect your calling regarding your character, regarding your message? And that if you don't do that, well, God's just going to shrug his shoulders and say, well, I don't know what to do now. Wolves are going to get you now. This is an important question for us to ask because, again, as Solomon speaks here, we see not just the surprising effectiveness of wisdom. We're reminded in verse 18 of Ecclesiastes 9 of the surprising destructive nature of folly, of sin. Again, at the end of the passage, he says, Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Oftentimes, we fail to acknowledge that surprisingly destructive nature of sin, don't we? We fail to acknowledge just how much harm can be done. And yet in our text, we see the, the folly of that, of that sin. We see its destruction. We see that sin blinds us to the historical evidence regarding the effectiveness of wisdom. I mean, consider again what we just said about the ministry of Jesus Christ. 
Time and time again, the enemies of Christ are convinced they're going to defeat Christ. Time and time again, Christ defeats them with the word. And yet in passing, or in, in, in hindsight, the enemies of Christ still say, yeah, but we still don't believe him, right? Yeah, but we still question his authority. Time and time again, folly blinds us to the beauty and effectiveness of the word of God. And regardless of how clear it is from history, people still continue to insist on the idea that God's strategy won't work. That the gospel is not powerful enough on its own. That we must look like everyone else if we're going to be successful. But when we believe that, we bring ourselves into utter destruction. For when we cling to worldly power, we will destroy all that we love. Solomon speaks clearly of this destruction time and time again. Solomon knew it better than so many of us know it this morning, for he has seen the effects of his own sin in life. So when you read through the, the words of Solomon, say in, in a book like Proverbs, in Proverbs chapter 5, when he speaks of the dangers of adultery, you know that Solomon knows firsthand the dangers of, of sexual immorality. Speaking specifically to that sin in Proverbs 5, in verse 1 he says, My son, give attention to my wisdom, incline your ear to my understanding, that you may observe discretion and your lips may reserve knowledge. For the lips of an adulteress drip honey, and smoother than oil is your speech. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death, her steps take hold of Sheol. She does not ponder the path of her life. Her ways are unstable, she does not know it. Brothers and sisters in Christ, it's one thing to acknowledge with our lips that sin is destructive, that sexual morality is destructive. But do our lives reflect a real understanding of just how dangerous sexual morality is? We, we confess with our lips that we understand that pride is a sin. And that pride goes before the downfall, before destruction, right? It's a, it's a verse I had memorized as a child. But, but do our lives reflect a proper fear and hatred of all that is prideful? How frequently are we guilty of, of just tasting slightly the, the sins of this world? How guilty we oftentimes are of, of participating in that which God clearly clearly defines his wickedness and yet assuming that that somehow it will all work out in the end for us we've seen this in our own lives we see it in the lives of friends how many marriages are destroyed because that taste of immorality is snuck in we see it oftentimes in friendships where relationships are destroyed because of pride sneaking in countless churches have crumbled to the ground because someone with, with good intentions brings division amongst the body. Because they're too proud to understand it and recognize it. Sin will destroy you. It will destroy your relationships. It will destroy all the other good that you've accomplished. And if it is not covered by the blood of Christ, it will lead you to eternal damnation. And yet how many people in this world are convinced that somehow they'll be unscathed by it all. Now Solomon is not speaking hyperbolically here. Solomon knows that wisdom is infinitely better. Purity is infinitely better. Meekness is infinitely better than all the power in the world. Because one leads to the blessing of God and one leads to eternal damnation. If we do not embrace that reality, we by our very nature will find ourselves walking down that primrose path to destruction. And so we must recognize the beauty of this. We must recognize the importance of this message. 
And in so doing, we come to that final point, which speaks to the only logical response. Christian, if, if you really do believe that it's what's on the inside that counts, if you really do believe that wisdom is infinitely better, then the only response is to pursue it with all of your might, to do exactly what Solomon spoke of last week in Ecclesiastes 9, verse 10, when he says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all of your might. That is the calling of every believer, to pursue wisdom with vigor, with passion. The calling of Ecclesiastes chapter 9 is, is the calling to stop looking at the outward appearance. It doesn't matter how impressive someone looks. It doesn't matter how impressive they might sound. That means nothing. Eventually, the outward appearance will give way. Eventually, fate will catch up and it will be destroyed. And so let us stop being so focused on that what the world is focused upon. As we do so, let us desperately seek out and find the wisdom of Jesus Christ. Unbelievers, please understand that the wisdom that Solomon is ultimately speaking of is found purely in Christ. That is the starting place. As we've said throughout this study, throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, the beginning of wisdom is fearing God. Unbeliever, if you want to be wise, if you want to find true success, at least in terms of eternity, it begins by falling on your knees before Jesus Christ and thanking God for the fact that that he does not depend upon your own wisdom and your own intellect, your own abilities to find salvation. He simply calls you to repent of your sins and believe. And I beg you to do that this morning. If you have any questions about that, please let me know afterwards. For believers, let us remember what true wisdom is. For my brothers and sisters in Christ, let us remember that there is nothing shameful in clinging to these messages that so many people in our worldview as childish or overly optimistic and naive. You are a sheep. You are helpless. You are weak. There is nothing significant about you outside of Christ. And there's nothing more comforting in the world than that truth. Take pride in the fact that you are a sheep of Jesus Christ. Let not yourself be tempted to put on the clothes of a wolf thinking that that is what is necessary for survival. No. Let us strive to be like Christ let us take pride in the fact that we are his sheep. Let us emulate his wise and perfect character. And in so doing, let us remember that, that this really is the effective plan of God. That in this wisdom, there is ultimate success. Not in this world necessarily, for the world will ignore it, but there is success in the eyes of our Savior. Let's strive after that with all our might then. And let's close our time of prayer as Jeff comes forward to play one more song. Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning again. God, we are all prone to question wisdom. We're all prone to focus on that outward appearance. And we're all prone to forget how dangerous that is. God, forgive us of that sin. Forgive us of wanting to look like everyone else. Forgive us for pretending to be like wolves when we're actually sheep. Cause us to be meek. Cause us to be humble. Cause us to be pure, Lord. Might we see the beauty in that calling and might we see that it is infinitely better than anything this world presents, God. For any unbelievers here, Lord, I pray for their salvation. For all of us who are believers, God, convict of us of our sin, Lord. Show us how we can become more like you, how we can reflect this wisdom. Might we do it all to your glory and to the encouragement of one another here. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.